1: Hey, Matthew here. Just before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a minor change to the way this podcast is streamed that might affect you. Scaffold is moving off of SoundCloud and onto Acast, a different and frankly better hosting service for podcasts. Basically, nothing's changing, it's just not going to be available on SoundCloud anymore. So if you listen directly from SoundCloud, you'll likely have to subscribe again through a different service like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or my personal favorite, Pocket Cast. If you already stream the show through any platform other than SoundCloud, though, then you're fine. Okay, that's it. On to the show. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Paloma Gormley, a founding director at Practice Architects, as well as the not-for-profit organization Material Cultures, both of which are based in London. Material Cultures which, along with Paloma, is directed by Summer Islam and George Massoud, brings together design, research, and action towards a post-carbon built environment. And a lot of their research feeds directly into the built work that Practice Architects designs. Practice is probably best recognized for their Flat House project, a groundbreaking, radically low, embodied carbon house. One of their earliest projects, Frank's Café, is equally inventive, made up of recycled scaffolding boards and a timber structure ratchet-strapped to the roof of a multi-story car park in Peckham. It's been reconstructed there every year since 2009. Paloma's parents are both artists. Her mother is the painter of Parsons, and her father is the sculptor Anthony Ormley. And we talked about the way her exposure to the art world growing up informed her approach to architecture. Among other things, we also discussed the struggle in balancing the poetic and sensorial aspects of designing with nature, with the technocratic reality of what sustainability means in today's construction industry. We also talked about how practice architects are trying to frame new relationships between agriculture and architecture, as much through their built work as through the stories their projects tell about new ways of building and living. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So I wondered if we could start, I guess, at the beginning of the practice itself, which Mm -hmm. as far as I understand was in 2009, when um, you got the commission to build this temporary cafe in Peckham called Frank's Cafe. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And this is while you were still studying architecture, you were doing your part one or your undergraduate degree. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Can you talk me through... I guess that period where you were still in university and at the same time were setting up this practice to do quite an exciting experimental piece of work. Um, can you just kind of bring us back to that moment and how you were balancing being a student with being in a sense a founding director of a small practice?
3: <laughs> Sounds very grand. Um, <laughs> uh, we, um, so lettuce and I are studying.
1: Sorry, this is lettuce Drake, who Drake. you worked on the cafe <laughs> with.
3: Yeah, and who she's the the kind of partner, the other partner in practice architecture. Um. So we were studying, and and a friend of mine um, approached us, Hannah Barry, uh, who runs Bold Tendencies. Uh, approached us because they've been they've been running the exhibition Bold Tendencies on on the roof of that car park.
1: And just for, for just for listeners who might not be aware, Bold Tendencies is a sculpture park that's situated in this multi-story car park in Peckham, and that's been running since 2008.
3: Well, before so they'd they started in I think 2006. Okay. Um, so Hannah had managed to kind of get the keys for this car park off the off the council. Um and yeah, on the basis that they were putting on this exhibition and, and it was very successful, but but also people would kind of come to Peckham, and go all the way up the top of this car park and then in a way there wasn't anything to kind of uh host them or greet them when they were up there. So the idea was to set up a, a kind of cafe somewhere to get a drink, maybe a sandwich. Um, we were designing very much with a view to um, how we could build something very simply um, and be able to build it ourselves. We'd spent the previous summer volunteering for Exist, um, who are no longer around as a collective, although their members are kind of now dispersed into lots of other interesting organisations. But at the time, they were definitely the most radical and, we thought, the most interesting kind of practice of, of, it, of the era,
1: Exist were working with the Barbican and the Dawson Curve Garden site prior to its reoccupation as a public space. Is that right?
3: Yeah, they did um, one of the installations. I think there were kind of three iterations of the Dawson Curve Garden before the final one, one of which was this amazing um, uh, bakery which had its Mm. own... Uh, effectively, kind of granary. So they made a windmill and a, hmm. and a turbine and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a kind of grinding station. And then I think they even grew a field of wheat down in, that's right. in the garden. What is now the garden? It was wonderful. And then they then they built the, the kind of barn structure that's there now. Hmm. Um, but they were an amazing collective of, of kind of not just architects but uh, builders and designers, and they. Very much lived and breathed their architecture.
1: Tell me more about the influence that exist had on the way you thought about how practice could work.
3: Yeah, I, uh, I guess it was a, a, a completely different mode of practicing architecture. So, I guess what maybe what the really significant thing is that the client was kind of removed from the equation and they existed in a, I guess, in a, in a kind of space of arts um, and or, or the event rather than architecture um, but in doing so we're kind of liberated uh, yeah, from this kind of economic service model um, and I guess they kind of served to experiment with different forms of being and different forms of living and different forms of kind of civicness mm. so on the one side it was how they um, could, as a collective, kind of sustain themselves with very minimal infrastructure, um, but always kind of, kind of beautifully efficient and, and well-designed.
1: Mm. I mean, it's reminiscent of the kind of work that collectives like Assemble do. And mm. I know that members of that collective studied at Cambridge, and I wonder, was that around the same time you were a student there?
3: We were all in the same year. Okay, yeah. interesting. Um, so we, yeah, I mean, we all, we had, I guess, similar, very similar experiences, similar education. And then Maria from Assemble was also volunteering with us um, that previous summer. Um,
1: and who was teaching there at the time? Is this the time that Tom Emerson was on faculty?
3: Yeah, so Tom Emerson taught a lot of, would have taught, I guess, half of us, um... For our final year, so he was my tutor in in the year that uh, we designed Franks, and um, and actually I, I kept it a secret, kept the project a secret from him because I thought he'd be a bit pissed off. Mm-hmm. But I was distracted um, by other things, but um, in the end, he he, he he's yeah, <laughs> he came to the cafe and and was quite pleased. Um, <laughs> Uh, or thought it was a reasonably worthwhile thing to have been distracted by. Um, but yeah, so we, yeah, we're yeah, kind of that cohort. And a lot of the, the quite a few people from Assemble would have volunteered or helped build Frank's Cafe in that first year. We mm. kind of called in everyone. It was after the construction started, just after we'd finished our exams. So we just put out a message to everyone we knew, saying, if you've got a spare day or two come and come and lend us a hand mm. and, and that, we'll learn how to use power tools together
1: <laughs> and that was the beginning of what seems like a really productive period where you were continuing to work with bold tendencies and other installations in the multi-story car park including the straw auditorium
3: yeah it was it kind of set us off i mean the 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 cafe, we never thought, Mettis and I never thought what we were doing was in any way the beginning of a, anything as formal as a architecture practice. And I think it was in maybe a year or two until we had a name or a, you know, anything else. Uh, so it, it was incredibly informal. Um, and I guess that directness of <clears throat> kind of working with peers often, so working with people that... Um, felt less like a client and more like collaborators um it felt like we were kind of sharing in the in in the kind of risk and the excitement of what we were doing designing and building everything that we made so yeah it's interesting that you say that it was very productive and it and it and it was um in many ways probably the most productive part of my life but at the same time um it was the least kind of administrative and and formalized and we had the least projects going on we did had one project at a time and we moved from project to project and now now i'm kind of you know you're juggling three four however many things at any one time and yes and yet kind of less seems to happen um, somehow but mm. the projects were small and uh and kind of light so that, that was definitely part of it but uh yeah we just moved we We would design something, go to wherever it was, build it. We'd kind of generally design only up to a structural level of resolution Um, and working with really great engineers. So France was done with Price and Myers and then we started working with Structure Workshop, um, who were really wonderful. Um, So we'd get the kind of, yeah, that primary level of resolution and then we'd Start building the structure and then add everything else on on site. And I guess the nature of the things that we were making meant that that was possible. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so that it was kind of a two-year period of of that way of working, and it went from kind of franks, and then we built these big steel sash windows, which are kind of terrifying guillotines where we cast these 70 kilogram lead weights and and that was a kind of rural engineering project and that was when we started working with henry stringer who became a kind of third member of our the kind of cool crew yeah after those windows we uh worked on projects like this auditorium made of straw which is in the same car park Just a kind of circular space with a with a kind of very Flush front wall, so you kind of you approach it, and it feels like you're just kind of walking up to what might be the kind of end of the car park, and then you get sucked into this kind of warm, acoustically soft, mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
3: mm-hmm. kind of farm-smelling space.
1: Yeah, it looks totally surreal. These kinds of projects, which seem experimental and improvisational, and have a kind of countercultural, I guess spirit to them um, in the way they're they're occupying temporarily. They're effectively squatting in mm. uh, overlooked or disused space in the city. And to me, it feels like it it borders on an artistic practice. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about uh, because both your parents are artists, um, your mother, Vican persons, as a painter and your father, of course, Anthony Gormley, is a sculptor. What kind of exposure uh, growing up you had to the art world and what kind of influence they had on your uh, decision to go into architecture and also your approach to design?
3: Hmm. Um, in a way, my, my choice of architecture was was trying to um, find a space of distinction from my parents because... The, that space of art was very well occupied by the two of them. Um, so I was keen to, I don't know, I guess, find my own discipline. And architecture felt like it, it could contain every, everything. For me, like a really well, I'm, I'm very happy to begin in, in the mundanity of kind of mm, every, everyday stuff. And then find the kind of pleasure and the joy in in mm. slightly subverting that, um, and maybe that desire to subvert comes from comes from that kind of exposure to the arts. Growing up, we'd go to exhibitions; we'd be taken to exhibitions at, at least once a week, and and um, it was an amazing experience just to constantly um, be exposed to to kind of inspiring and challenging and um, interesting ideas and I guess one exhibition um, that I went to probably age 16 that was by the group Gelatin who are this Austrian collective of artists and they do these extraordinary installations but this one was at the Gagosi in in King's Cross and uh, you had to you arrived and you signed a disclaimer um, not to sue anyone uh, if you were in any way damaged uh, by the installation and then, and then sent up a ladder to a small hole in the wall at the top of the ladder and then you crawl along a pass- horizontal passage and then drop down into a kind of womb-like space that's just made out of, kind of furniture and armchairs and old chests of drawers with a very soggy bottom of the floor. And take off all your clothes and then arrive into this uh room that was mainly it kind of felt like a kind of dump um huge indoor dump that was that had been <laughs> flooded. Uh and it had a plasticine man made out of plasticine doing a crab pose and kind of fountain of urine coming from his penis into his mouth and then it, uh these are um, extraordinary saunas, which were made of melted um, uh, bins—those big plastic recycling bins that had been melted and turned into, and stuck on, and legs, and stuck on legs—and you climb up into them, and then someone would wheel a, a trolley that had a electric hob with a massive saucepan on top, and back underneath you, and that was the kind of sauna effect. Um, <sighs> And then extraordinary <laughs> toilets with mirrors and did it it, it. it was amazing. So I spent kind of about four hours in there and came out a different person, I think.
1: Huh. Wow. I mean, that, that, that description itself for me was a real journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just kept getting more and more bizarre. But um, can you actually bring me back into that moment, the four hours you spent in that sauna and how it transformed you, how you emerged from that experience?
3: Yeah, I think. Um, what is it? <laughs> this idea, that, well, the the ability of space to completely transform kind of social relationships, and the fact that that space was not obeying the rules meant that everyone mm. in it no longer had to obey the rules. So there was no mm. there was no floor. And there were no walls. All those things had been kind of lost. There was no nothing that kind of looked like a chair or a... You know, all the kind of formal objects through which we kind of orientate ourselves socially and kind of share a social code, they were gone. And it was kind of extraordinary how that made you feel, but also how it made people kind of interact very, very differently. Um. Uh, It felt like anything could kind of set off. Everyone was mm, very in tune with each other in the space and anything could kind of set something off in the space. I I remember someone started kind of clapping a rhythm and it sounds ridiculous, but within about a second the whole room was kind of uh, making music together Um, Mm -hmm. uh, whilst lying around kind of naked drinking cider and... Mm.
1: Um, inside the Gagosian
2: gallery
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting that I understand this description of or this experience of how space can be transformative in its Mm. effect on social relationships Mm. and in a sense what you're describing or the kind of space you're describing really is the space of the gallery Mm. and in your work now The equivalent space that I want to explore with you or discuss with you is a space of the factory,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which, based on the work that you're doing with practice architects and also this organization, Material Cultures, seems to be a space that you have identified as having this potential Mm -hmm. to um, transform relationships or become a space of creativity rather Mm -hmm. than mass homogeneity, as you've described it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, I guess I'm setting up a destination with this comment. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to, I want to make our way towards it now by talking about the establishment of material cultures, what exactly it is and how it feeds into your practice.
3: Mm. Um, So material cultures is a research organization um, established probably about Two three years ago now with with together with summer islam um and we run it with george masood who's another other director um and it's interested in the kind of intersection of uh what are seen as kind of very traditional materials so uh straw earth stone um but with kind of contemporary technology um and effectively how those materials can become mainstream, which is actually something that even in that space of time since we established it, feels like it, it's hopefully an inevitable thing um, and definitely that, that, that it's um, something that architects are really now very keenly getting their teeth into and that that changes literally feels like it's happened in the last kind of couple of years and it's quite amazing um, to have seen. Um, but yeah, the the organization, I guess, for me anyway emerged uh out of um having done this project called Flat House, which was a, a project uh to, to kind of create a house um out of agricultural materials, namely um hemp uh and to think about how I guess inherently kind of Low-carbon materials can be used in quite a kind of contemporary way, and in quite a kind of conventional building, just a, a kind of 100 meter squared house. Um, so in that project, uh, I worked with Steve Barron, who established Margent Farm, um, and I helped him kind of find a, a site, and then and then he sowed uh, about 30 acres of hemp. Um, and that hemp was harvested and then processed. The ship was used to make hempcrete, which is a kind of insulative, um, kind of massive, um it has mass uh, uh, material, very crude material, um, that uh, kind of holds air, but also has thermal mass that comes from the lime, really. Um, and then the, the fibre is incredibly strong and was, combined with a bioresin and, and made into a cladding panel. So mm. we we're kind of looking at those two different outputs.
1: Um, mm. I love the just the, the detailed description of the material that you're working with and all of its, all of its constituent parts that become useful as construction material. Mm. And it's just reminding me of a lecture you gave um, virtually at ETH two years ago as a part of Adam Caruso's seminar series called what's next Mm. where you're asking this really broad question which was can we can we being architects can we return to stuff and I mean you started by describing explaining the kind of history of construction as originating through the use of stuff that didn't really move very far from where it came from Mm. And that we're now in this period of what you've called a product architecture. If you Mm -hmm. think of the cross-section of a wall, you can see various layers, not only of petrochemical-based materials, but also of liability and building regulations, which dictate the use of those materials. And so this in-depth description of hemp that you're giving us now is really a description of an alternative, um, that relies less on the petrochemical industry and also on these these very abstract um, kind of layers around architecture that in a way distance us as designers, but also as inhabitants from the building itself. Mm -hmm. You've called this a kind of loss of agency where we we become alienated from the way our homes work. And you're asking how that acts on us and i guess this project um flat house is a, a possible answer to that could you talk more about the prototypical nature of flat house and what other kinds of um i guess critiques it was making of the building industry as it stands
3: mm. um that was a very nice précis. probably more eloquent than, than the original uh. talk
1: um, I mean, it's from it's from what you had said, <laughs> so I'm just paraphrasing it. Um,
3: that's, that's good. Nice to to hear it back, and, and I think said clearer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I get uh, Flat House contained, I guess, quite a few questions and suggestions. Um, so, guess, one was this. Um, yeah, well, many man, Multiple questions or relationships the questions about materials and and the kind of building's relationships and materials So one kind of about geography so the 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 hemp was grown literally in the next field um, and then just happened to have to do a couple of laps of the country before it came back um, to site <laughs> because the processing equipment for hemp um, only really exists currently in in one place in Yorkshire. you know the reality is it's it's pretty hard to orchestrate anything like a kind of building that's <clears throat> drawn from a from a kind of local landscape these days uh, because of supply chains you know even if you wanted to go and dig up enough clay to make your house you, you might be blocked by um, you know planning permissions to dig that bigger hole um, so it's it, it's the the stuff architecture this kind of direct architecture is there's there's so many um uh barriers to it. But I think what what we're trying to work out is what they what each of those barriers are and how they can be overcome. And to be honest, what you probably end up with is an architecture that's as codified and as kind of structured and but that's hopefully just a, a kind of better and reformed version of the same thing. Um but there can also hopefully be some kind of playful adventures along the way in discovering what that architecture is. We just published this report, um, which was an uh, exploration that we um, carried out with Arab into what a kind of bioregional economy would look like um, for construction in Yorkshire. Uh, and that was a material cultures project. And it, that was essentially the beginning of kind of uh, uh, laying out the kind of territory of what would be required for for a, a kind of genuine for a building to have a genuine geographical relationship to place to its place in the world, um, which feels like you know it's a way away, but it's but it's possible, and the fact that that report was commissioned by a kind of an Alep local, and essentially a kind of semi-governmental organisation feels really positive um, and Mm, and forward-thinking. There's there's such a a kind of aesthetic connotation with with these traditional materials of kind of hobbit homes and that that genre Mm -hmm. of of eco-architecture that um, Mm -hmm. is sadly kind of, has been kind of much maligned. You know, you don't open AJ and see a picture of um, someone's kind of DIY shack made out of uh you know carb etc but actually there's probably some of them you know where the innovation's actually been happening in the last however many years and and i in a way i mean i have a deep respect uh and admiration for that language of architecture um but i think we're interested in in kind of bringing these materials into a a place where they can be recognised as something um, that, you know, uh, that is accessible to everybody and desirable to everyone. And I guess that's why we kind of made a house that looks relatively conventional. But I guess the, the slightly unusual thing about it is that the materials are on show and Kind of celebrated and even the construction is is there to kind of see and to understand there's very little that's hidden and i think that's always been an excitement from from kind of the origins of practice architecture we we liked making stuff and we liked the impact of um what it feels like to be in a place where where it's understandably made the buildings so legible in, in the first place, you know, that mm-hmm. its technology is apparent,
1: and mm. it makes a lot of sense that there is this desire to build legible buildings, or understand quite clearly how a building is operating, especially in a period where technology is increasingly almost mystical, or f- or at least boggling and incomprehensible in its complexity, and there are no longer any moving parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In terms of digital culture. And I think I've been on this odyssey recently speaking with practices who work um, primarily in virtual space. And then also more recently, I spoke with the architect Takeshi Hayatsu, who you've worked with as Mm -hmm. well at Central St. Martins. Mm -hmm. But to me, there's this clear binary that's established itself between designers who are wholeheartedly embracing the virtual and designers who are trying to recover some sense of materiality, tactility, and legibility of of construction, uh, almost as a form of resistance or recovery. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I think further to that point, um, I wanna talk more about uh, the way you've been thinking about the factory as a space of creative production.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: through material culture, as you've explained that you aim to co-opt the factory as a place of creativity rather than mass homogeneity i mean you're working through ideas here about alternative approaches to the factory and also staking out a new territory i think of participation within the process of mass production mm-hmm. this ties into this question of a concern that you've raised around how processes like reuse and recycling can quickly become highly technocratic. And when you mentioned this report that you've worked on with Arup, um the the possibility of technocracy mm-hmm. seems to become more, more apparent. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you're also interested in this idea of how to bring critical regionalism into the 21st century
2: yeah
1: so the question <laughs> <laughs> i'm going i think i'm going way up, i'm all over the place right now but the question is <laughs> it's just making me think
3: <laughs> um with you know just a small feat to- <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's obviously you're trying to do a lot but there, are are such exciting questions i think that the um the overarching question Probably has to do with how you balance as a designer the necessity for a systematic approach to sustainable design with the kind of poetry and ambiguity and emotionalism Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we associate with the landscape, with the environment Mm -hmm. and with our relationship to it.
3: Yeah, it's a big question. (laughs) <laughs> so um I think there's yeah, there's an inherent tension in in all of this and in in the work that we're trying to do that you've articulated very well I think. Um <clears throat> in that I think uh something that we're really wanting to do with our work is to kind of um change the nature of authorship. Um, I think there's a, there's a real risk with, uh, as we wrote in that piece, um, with kind of technology and, and, and the way, the direction in which, of travel, of uh, power, agency, uh, authorship, being further and further concentrated into fewer hands this is where I get frustrated with that version of the circular economy you know we're coming up with all these very ingenious systems that can be you know reconfigured reconfigured um, but they're kind of you know they're virgin systems using virgin steel virgin materials incredibly high energy high carbon um, mm. and once we've invested that carbon we're kind of locked into that use of that system and the design of that system and, and the you know and the authorship is very likely to be in the hands of the kind of usual suspects um, so I guess and when you
1: say usual suspects you mean just like larger corporate practices with uh, decades of experience and strong relationships with the construction industry and with
3: yeah. institutional power yes exactly and, and generally led by the, the white man um, mm. in his in his 50s um, <laughs> not that I you know uh, I don't want to kind of indict white men uh but but it's okay that authorship <laughs> um you know it's 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 too prevalent and there's too mm. much power in in one demographic um so i guess one of the things that feels exciting about these natural materials um is that they're um they're kind of inherently looser actually they're very They're very simple to design with, very, very direct. Um, So those kind of technical barriers that in a way we've kind of created with this kind of oil culture um, and the the kind of layers and the layers of liability that you were describing earlier um, that make the practising of architecture and design this, um, you know, discipline that you have to train for seven years at great expense and great debt um, necessary. Kind of necessitate that. In a way, a, a lot of that um, the, that technification kind of goes out the window. You're back to a much more straightforward way of, of doing things. Um, and even if we are limited with a timber frame to five stories, in a way that you know that's also potentially a, a, a pretty good scale to be carrying on with. Um, Mm. Kind of leave the skyscrapers to the naughties. Leave them standing, but we can maybe move move on. <laughs> We've been working with this factory, a um, brick factory. For, I think I've been going there now for about six years and every time I go and hang out there, it, I just uh, find it the most exciting place to be and generative place to be because you're in direct contact with things being made and it just it feels like a kind of playground for architectural thinking Um so the the ambition for material cultures whether we get there, I don't know um is for um the kind of uh design and fabrication and innovations of our kind of systems and models that we're developing as part of the research um to to kind of happen in a place of of Manuf- manufacture and alongside it, so you almost have these paralyzed dreams if you can imagine the kind of the plan of a the, the factory of our dreams it, it is you know on one side you have this kind of rationalized um, process making multiples, and on the other side you have chaos um, mm-hmm. the two are in dialogue and and are organized in such a way that they can they, they can be adaptation and and that also that that relationship would be shifting depending on the uh, kind of regionality um mm. but I think that it's always going to be important to our work that there's um that the that we're working at these two different scales. that on the one hand um you're kind of looking for these outputs that you know maybe one day Taylor wimpy might you know um draw from. Some of some of the design work that we're doing at that at that scale, but on the other hand, you're kind of, you know, making a a shed with with boulders instead of foundations on a farm somewhere in Cumbria. Um, mm-hmm. and Just
1: for listeners outside of the UK, Taylor Wimpy is a large commercial construction company responsible for a lot of new and shoddily built housing in in London. <laughs>
3: Further um, and further
1: afield and further afield um i'm going to ask you one more question and then i'll let you go in another interview you gave you were talking about the margin farm project the, the flat project and how the client was a filmmaker he was a filmmaker who's interested in narrative and a certain sense of integrity or loyalty that can be brought to the story of the project rather than than just pragmatically proceeding with the design of it. And at the beginning of the conversation, you talked about how you are, in essence, a pragmatic thinker and drawn to the kind of mundane or banal aspects of construction and architecture. And something you learned from that project was how important it was to keep this romance alive despite all the pragmatism involved could you could you elaborate on that what exactly you learned from this filmmaker and how moving forward narrative will become more Hmm. fundamental to the work you do
3: Hmm. Um. I'd forgotten I'd said that but uh it's, it's very true it was it was amazing working with Steve because he because he's a um He's a director, and he deals in in stories, and it and it always f- felt like the the yeah the project at Margent Farm was a, was a story. This idea of kind of buying a farm and growing a field of hemp and growing essentially growing a house um, was a story, and then and then all these hurdles that we came up along, you know came up against along along the way that had I been doing it without Steve would kind of th- have thrown the project in very different directions at each, at each point but because um, it was so important to him that, that the story was you know yeah as he said uh, had integrity it meant that we just kept on kind of pushing through you know doggedly following a straight line depending on no matter what was in front of us and that that led to things like the this hemp that had been grown on the grown on the adjacent field, kind of doing this doing its own journey then around the country in order to find the people that or the machinery or whatever to that could process it. It would have been much easier to have just grown some hemp and bought some other hemp from, you know, when they grow it and process it in France by the you know, by the ton. Um mm. I think in hindsight, in a way, uh yeah, it is it is already influencing or it's influenced everything that kind of came after for me. Um and even the things that we've been talking about today, you know, this this relationship to the factory at the moment, a lot of that is story um and and narrative, you know, we we have um the beginnings of of those relationships but the the kind of that fuller picture is is very much one that uh currently exists in fiction but without the fictional version the um, the reality the real version might not ever happen it feels like a really exciting place to be at the moment in terms of kind of Weaving together these different territories, so working across architecture, construction um, but also kind of agriculture and landscape, so material cultures is increasingly looking to um, kind of what the future of this kind of manufactured landscape might be, and what what that represents as a design question um, so if we are talking about architecture as a kind of regenerative force really what we're talking about is agriculture and what does that agriculture need to look like in order for it not to be a kind of another kind of uh industrialized process that kind of degrades the soil and contributes to climate collapse and biodiversity loss uh, so you almost come to this point where in order to kind of design a building you at first have to design the landscape that will produce that Building, mm. and we're looking at kind of agroforestry techniques, and um, kind of how crop cycles can be utilised in such a way that you know you can um, replenish the soils, etc., and where we're going to be drawing our timber from, um, and what that forestry might look like, whether it's kind of coppice um, timber to these kind of very fast yield three year cycles um, or whether it's a new form of regenerative uh, forestry and what, what kind of species might we be planting in order for them to be climate resilient etc cetera, etc cetera. but these are all kind of questions in a way we need to answer now in order to start making the buildings of you know of, of the future in, in 10 or 20 years mm. and all of that is a form of kind of of storytelling. We need to start telling those stories in order for those seeds to be planted.
1: Belinda, thank you so much.
3: No, that was so nice. I really, really enjoyed the conversation.
1: You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold_Podcast. podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Paloma Gormley. Special thanks this week to Maya Vixney. Thanks as always to Skandolyn, And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week.